one o'clock on the East Coast. That's Eastern Time, Dan, East Coast. I'm Guy Adami. That's Dan Nathan. Today we're joined by Elizabeth Young of SoFi. See, now all you people are like, what the hell happened? Because I'm I'm unpredictable in my predictability. This is, Dan, Market Call. Big win by the Knicks last night. That's one of those statement games you don't want to lose uh, on your home court, a deciding game. So they live to fight another day. Tomorrow night in Miami should be interesting. Uh, I thought the Knicks acquitted themselves well. Brunson playing all 48 minutes. Good for him. I mean, that's what we're here for. Lay it on the freaking line. Uh, Yankees won yesterday. Workmanlike fashion. Uh, The Mets playing an afternoon special today. How are you, Dan? Oh, hold on. Before we go, today's market call, Dan, brought to you by SoFi. Get your money right all in one app. And, of course, FactSet Financial Data and Analytics, powered by tomorrow. They're also our data provider. As I mentioned in just a few minutes, Elizabeth Young, who's currently drinking kombucha for gut health. I, I, I don't know why, but we'll talk about that. And, of course, hashtag butters, because that's what we do on Thursdays. Hi, Dan. Yeah, we do. We, we highlight John Butters. He's the senior earnings insight analyst over there at FactSet. And we get a preview guy of his – Friday drop. Yeah, we do. You know why? Because we're cool as shit. That's why. All right. And we try Um, to share it with the audience. By the way, keep – oh, sorry. Hold on. I got one more thing to say. Um, If you haven't done so already, and many of you have as I see the growth each day, but please subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can see it on the scroll below. Uh, And like us. Dan, what should we do? Uh, like us in the podcast or do whatever. All right, let's get no, to but, it. Yeah, enough, but, enough, enough, enough. We got so slam much. Slam the shit do. out of the like button. We got Please, so much go. to do here today. Um, you know, it's interesting. We've been doing this now, market call, four days this week, Monday, Tuesday, mm. Wednesday, Thursday. It feels like the market, every time we start talking, is trading at 41.30. That would be it's the incre- it's, it's incredible. And, and, and But here's the thing. Under the hood, there's actually lots of interesting things going on. And, and a day like today where, you know, again, we were you know waiting for CPI yesterday, waiting for PPI today. Um, the readings come in a little low, but the, I mean, below expectations, like a smidge and, you know, expectations though, um, are that it's going to be persistent and pesky, as you've been saying, that would be, um, the inflation. But when I look around and I'm looking at my fact set screen, I see energy stocks really weak. We're going to take a closer look at those. We see the financials, the regionals, again, that's the main story here. Really weak. I look at, um, resource stocks, really weak. I look at the Russell 2000 small caps down 1% on the day, really weak. The S&P is not telling the story. Now, the flip side of that, and we're going to talk about Google, it's up 5% today. They had their Google I.O. They highlighted a bunch of their um, AI products here. Amazon's up 2.25%. Meta's up 2%. Netflix is up 2%. So we're just seeing, guy, just a continue of this narrowing of the rally, predominantly in mega cap tech. But under the hood, there's just a lot of things that don't feel particularly great. There's a reason why the Egyptians built the pyramids with the big part on the bottom, and then they went like this, right? Because yeah. you want a strong foundation. What we're seeing is the exact opposite, obviously. Um, the pyramid is inverted, so you have very few stocks holding up the entire structure. And at a certain point, not even a stiff wind can blow that over. And I think that's what we're seeing. And I'm glad you mentioned the financials because it's something we've been harping on in a while. I'm sure we'll look at a KRE chart. It does not trade well. There'll be people that will be quick to dismiss that. I don't think you can. You're hearing more and more voices talking about the importance of the financial and some really 
what the, sort of the knock-on and ancillary effects are going to be to the economy. It's not a tomorrow story, but it is a story not, uh, nonetheless. And we'll see what happens. But to your point, here we are, 4130, which as I mentioned a couple times now, when I left April 14th for my trip, the S&P was 4130, and it's gone up, it's gone down, but we're still here. Now, with each passing day, that pennant that we seem to be um, getting towards the end of, something's got to give, right? Like the movie. So here we are. You have that downtrend. That's the red line. You have the uptrend as either yellow or green. I can't tell. It doesn't matter. Moving average comes in right at that uptrend line. It seems to me um, that at some point, 39.75, we have to take a look at. Now, I've been saying that for a while as well. What's going to be the catalyst? Well, this debt ceiling continues to sort of grind on. There's some geopolitical things out there as well. Market, again, doesn't seem to care with a VIX at 17 and change, Dan. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, let's bring Liz in because- um, Oh, wow. Yes, but she wants to talk um, a little inflation. She wants to kind of break down a little bit about what we saw in the CPI and the PPI. Liz Young, that would be EY from SoFi, the head market. Uh, Those are jazz jazz hands. Oh, wow. Jazz hands. Jazz hands. Wow. You're just excited to be here, aren't you? <laughs> Always. How are you? How are you, Liz? All right. So I'm help, lovely. Put 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 some context about what we got. Um, CPI, PPI. I know you were writing about it in your note on the SoFi blog today. And then let's hit a button. There's there's just a lot of stuff going on. And again, it's not yeah. really reflective in what the S and P and the Nasdaq are saying to us right now. Yeah. So CPI yesterday. Uh, I actually was pretty encouraged by this report. Now, let me be clear. I'm not declaring victory. It is not over by any stretch of the imagination. But the reason I was encouraged is because I get asked so often, what would make you more bullish? What would have to happen in order for you to drop this cautious stance? And every single time I say something about services inflation has to come down. That's what we worry about. It's the sticky piece. And then there's this other measure that the Fed has invented recently called the super core, regardless of the fact that I think it's ridiculous because it strips out everything. It's basically core services X shelter, but they watch the super core and it matters because if they're watching it, it's going to influence what they're doing with policy. The super core measure had its lowest reading since July of last year in this last uh, in April's print. So Number one, that's important because it means that services inflation is coming down. That's what we needed to see. Number two, the other relationship that was interesting, there's another chart in there too, just flip to that one real quick. The other relationship that's interesting is for the first time in a very long time, goods inflation actually outpaced services inflation. So for this entire period before that, we'd been talking about, well, services is really sticky, that magenta line. You can see that it had just moved sideways for a long time and goods inflation had actually given up a lot of the increases that it had seen. Well, this month, goods inflation was higher. Then you probably ask me, isn't that a bad thing? Sort of, but the only reason it was higher is because used car prices happened to go up. I think that's just a little blip that we're seeing new car prices actually contracted. So I don't think this used car price thing is going to persist, which would mean, follow all the way through here, that maybe next month core inflation comes down even further. So I think this is a good trajectory to be on. Where there's still a problem and where there's still risk out there is that obviously inflation is still almost 5% and far from target. But some of the stuff that I think could have surprised us to the upside in a bad way is showing signs of relaxing. 
No doubt about it. So the the number came in. The headline number came in four nine. The street was at five. Core was I think right in line of five and a half. Super core. You're right to mention because that is one thing they're watching. The push. Not that there's pushback, but the what I would add to this equation is this is all happening with five percent of rate hikes. So I think right. we would all acknowledge they are probably done regardless. Now the question comes. You know, inflation will probably can continue to come down, but they're done slaying that dragon. The flip side is that we harp on, you talk about, is the lag effect starts to kick in as inflation starts to come down. So it's sort of the one-two punch. So the, the inflation part might be working. Of course, the back end of it is the economy is going to grind. I don't want to say to a halt, but things are going to slow down precipitously, which is why I'm still sort of pessimistic or at least not optimistic about the stock market thoughts on that ey right so timing timing is the biggest factor now so and and i'm not optimistic about the stock market either but i'm because the stock market is not the economy right but i have said since the beginning of this inflation is public enemy number one and we want inflation to come down that is first and foremost the fed has said that as well because if we leave inflation untouched we're in a recession anyway, and it's even tougher to come back out of that one. So inflation was public enemy number one, remains that way. But timing is the issue now. So even if inflation keeps coming down, the other thing to note is that it stopped coming down as quickly as it had been mm -hmm. since the peak. So peak was July of last year. It really kind of fell off a cliff for a few months after that. Then it sort of slowed its roll on the way down, right? So it's coming down much more slowly now. The timing thing is that if the Fed can accomplish what I think it wants to accomplish, what would happen is that inflation gets closer to target in a pretty methodical fashion, and they can slowly cut rates to get closer to neutral. The reason timing matters is that they're also hoping that nothing else breaks before that actually occurs. I'm not optimistic that that's going to be the case. I do think that something else is going to break sooner rather than later. But it is good that we are getting closer and cooling more before that break occurs, right? Because yeah. otherwise, if you've got inflation that's really, really high, even if something breaks, it might still not take care of the entire problem. So there's a chance, I think there's a higher chance that if something breaks, it might throw us into a mild recession. That mild recession with inflation where it is might be enough to take it back down to a manageable level. And then we sort of come out of a mild recession minimally scathed that's still probably not my base case but that's i think that's the best case scenario yeah and i think for those who are waiting for something to you know to, to, to break and, and i guess we, we have a tidy little example here of what happened in regional banks right and they are breaking the backs are being broken of of many of them at least of the equity of them the deposit flight the, the, the forced you know into receivership or the forced sales i mean that's something I think for those people who are waiting for something else, you know, to happen, another shoe to drop, it might just be that the cooling of the economy as reflective of the 10 year yield is the thing that it breaks the back of this consumer. It breaks the back of enterprise spending. And that's the thing that causes a recession where a lot of people have moved, you know, like you said, your base case is, is a shallow sort of recession. I mean, I don't know. I, I just feel like, you know, we're on the cusp of, of something that we haven't seen the Fed funds rate at a spread to the 10 year yield mm -hmm. when the Fed funds rate is above the 10 year yield like we see right now. So we have a Fed funds at five percent, five and a quarter at the upper bound. And we have a 10 year yield once again approaching that three, three, two or three, three, 
O level. But when you have the Fed funds so much higher than the 10-year, the 10-year is telling, at least saying something to me about growth. And it doesn't have to be some sort of financial calamity. It doesn't have to be some part of the economy just going haywire. It could merely just mean that we've had a monetary and fiscal-induced economy, a, a, a consumer that's been buffeted by it, a, a, an enterprise spending that's been buffeted by zero rates. And now that's all out the door. You know what I mean? And so yeah. if you think about this debt ceiling debate that we're having right now, what are the GOP, what are they trying to do? They're trying to force trillions of dollars of future spending cuts, okay? That is not supportive of an economy that we've become used to, especially at a time where we have the cost of borrowing and the cost of capital just so much higher. And so to me, I just feel like we can dumb this down a little bit. Guy, I'm just curious. Yeah, so let me jump in on rates. And I know EY, Elizabeth has some thoughts on this as well. Put that chart back up in terms of just the yields. And I don't want to necessarily make Jacob or Steven or Amanda do this on the fly, but if we could pull up a TLT chart it's really interesting. So just visualize this real quick. You notice a bunch of times we've traded down to about, I don't know, 330-ish and it bounced. 109 is your level on the TLT. So this is sort of the inverse of what we just looked at. So since December, every time we've gotten to 109, we have failed. You can look at it right there. It speaks to that right now. So 109 sort of correlates-ish to about three and a quarter or so in yield. So We've been in the camp, and it's been painful at times, but yields were probably going lower. And although people will interpret that as bullish, they're not going lower for the right reason. So if you're looking for levels here, you break through the 109 on the upside. That means yields. I think that 3% that Carter's talked about for a while, I think that's going to happen a lot faster than people think, Dan. Yeah. And, 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 you know, listen, um, we had uh, David Rosenberg uh, of Rosenberg Research on on the tape podcast. We taped it yesterday. It's going to drop in the podcast stores tomorrow morning. Check that out. And, you know, we had some similar sort of discussions here. And I think, David, I'd love to get your take, um, Liz. I mean, Rosie's basically saying that a lot of the stuff that the kind of soft landing group are looking at are just not the leading indicators. They're the lagging indicators, you know, and we get stuck on some of this stuff here. And sometimes it's kind of hard to see, um, you, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm just curious your take on that because it seems like the bulls are really stuck on these kind of lagging over leading indicators right now. Well, you know what's interesting, first of all, is that the bulls used to be real bulls. Now the bulls are soft landing bulls, mm -hmm. right? So they've kind of come off of their platform as it was. Also, I want to clarify, because I didn't do a good job of this before. My base case is a pretty classic recession. It's mm -hmm. not a mild one, but it's also not a severe one. Okay, so that would look something like GDP contracts single digits and unemployment gets somewhere to like 6%. It doesn't go double digits, but six-ish percent, that would be a, a pretty big jump from here, frankly, yeah. but something that doesn't you know, go on for many, many, many quarters. So a classic recession and then classic reaction in the market, cyclicals get hit, small caps get hit, and then you have the classic recovery on the other side, which is usually not tech, but anyway, so just to clear that up. Yeah. But he's right, Rosie's right, the bull case or the soft landing case is looking at things like, well, the consumer is still spending, right? There's still cash in the system. There's still however much savings pent up. Unemployment is still low. There hasn't been a big spike in jobless claims. Jolts are still high. All of those things are backward looking. GDP is still positive, right? Yeah. Well, you find out about GDP almost 30 days after the previous quarter was over. So 
all of that is backward looking. Inflation is, is backward looking. All of the leading stuff, including the market signals that are leading, are saying a pretty classic recession is right around the corner. So you can't ignore that. The, the one piece that still has not flashed recession, and PMIs are, are more concurrent, they're more coincident indicators than they are leading, but manufacturing PMI has been in contraction for mm -hmm. a while. Services PMI is like right on the edge and it hasn't quite gone in. It dipped down into contraction, but then it popped right back out. Once services goes into contraction and stays there for two or three months, that's pretty much the signal. That's the nail in the coffin that says that's it. And so go ahead. No, you, I was going to say quickly, what you just described is what you and I talked about. I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, the importance of PMI versus CPI and, you know, the cost that cost that they pay on the one side and then obviously the cost associated on the other side. And you're getting into some really weird stuff here. And your point about 6% unemployment, by the way, I don't disagree, but 6% unemployment is light years from where we are now. And that is not a straight line in terms of not being painful from three, four to six over the course of however many months that, you know, I don't want to be hyperbolic here, but that's a pretty draconian move. It is. But in the grand scheme of recession, 6% is actually not that high, right? right? It's just right. that we're starting from such a low base. Um, quick lesson in economics. Somebody just asked if PMIs really are uh, coincident. They are, but we don't find out about the recession until late. So they feel like they're leading. But if you look, if you just overlay PMIs on those actually recession shaded areas, PMIs yeah. drop right when the recession starts. It's just that you find out about it much later. And let's talk about some of this price action we're seeing in different sectors in the markets. And this headline kind of caught my attention this morning. I was looking at some of the metals and minings. Amanda uh, put up the XME chart here. And, and look at this headline from Reuters, metals price fall with concerns over strength of China's economic recovery. And this is something that we've been questioning for a while because a lot of the data that we've seen, even though I know that people are excited about the GDP print um, you know, out of China, but again, they did this very hard shift, right, from zero COVID um, at the start of this year. And I think that was something that I think global equity markets really cheered at the time. I would think we've cooled off a little bit since then. But look at this chart of the XME. I mean, this looks like a textbook head and shoulder. It's below the moving averages here. And when you put together, you know, that kind of notion that maybe China, which should have been the sort of engine, right, for the, the sort of, um, you know, at least to put a floor on some of these um, industrial commodities, it's just not doing it right now. And so to me, I just think that the longer we see the sort of malaise or the lack of demand coming from the China reopening, it's just the further or the harder it's going to be for the rest of the world to kind of stay afloat, in my opinion, especially when it seems like um, you know, rates have come up so dramatically. You saw what happened. Um, you know, we, we're, we're still seeing rate cut or rate hikes in Europe here. So again, I, I'm just curious, Guy, your thoughts on this. And let's, let's talk a little bit about the energy sector too, because they just seem really heavy right now. Metals, obviously, the metals that you're talking about, this is sort of ex-gold because gold's its own animal. But, you know, the base metal, specifically copper, clearly has been under pressure. And that's the most, they called it Dr. Copper for a reason, the most economically sensitive commodities probably outside of crude oil. And it, it is telling a story. And you're speaking to a slowdown. And it's amazing. And I know Elizabeth can speak to this as well. I mean, think about the, think about the decisions the ECB has to make in terms of what's going on there. They clearly are in a bit of a slowdown, but they also have a worse inflation problem that we have. I don't want to say 2x, but you know, probably coming up around 2x times the problem that we have. 
And they're forced to make difficult decisions in the form of continuing to raise rates. So they understand what's going to happen. And again, say what you want about Europe not being that important. You put Europe, those Eurozone countries together, and that's a pretty significant economy. As a matter of fact, it's a larger population in the United States and has a greater GDP than the United States. So you can't dismiss all these things out of hand. They all have knock-on effects at some point. Yep. I actually happened to just check these numbers today unrelated to this show. The inflation rate in the Eurozone, 8.9% as of last reading. Inflation rate in the European Union, so other countries that do not use the Euro, about 8.3%. And then GDP in both of those, both below 0.5%. Okay, so like, I think I said this last week, if you want a definition of stagflation, go look at Europe. It is exactly what's happening over there right now, and they are stuck. And you're right, if we are relying on any spending from Europe, or if we were relying on spending from China to make up for anything that was a contraction here, it's not happening. And that's why you're seeing things like metals, which are a global commodity that are gonna be affected by activity all across the globe, fall off. And I posted this, I, I tweeted it today, I think we have it if you wanna bring it up, the copper to gold ratio, which is something that you can look at pretty classically, has fallen. It's at new cycle lows right now. And that indicates if copper is the most cyclical metal, gold is sort of the safe haven. That sends a very classic contraction signal. And it's another reason why I think that if we do have a recession, it will be a very classic recession because the way that we get into it is that the Fed hiked rates, right? There's usually really only one thing that causes a recession besides a big exogenous shock, and it's the Fed hiking rates. So this is almost textbook stuff. And some of these signals are very textbook as well. Yeah. Last one. Let's just look on the commodity front. Let's just look at this crude oil. And, and again, um, it just really feels very heavy. We've talked about the energy stocks, the large uh, integrateds, but um, you know, crude really feels like it's got another kind of push lower to, to those lows um, just from last week, which was a bit of a double bottom low, but it takes you back to 2021 there. And, and maybe there's some support in the mid um, to low 60s. Guy, take on like the OIH, um, the, the oil services, because this, this, is, this is a pretty interesting chart. If you look at how far this stock or this ETF has come in, in such a short period of time. And now it's kind of sitting on what I would say is a fairly important technical level. Spring of last, so this somewhere between 245 and 250 has been sort of this pivot point a number of different times. And here we are again. Clearly, I didn't think this was going to happen. You know, I was O in my mojo trade, doesn't matter which O, but one of the O's is OIH. And I was looking like a genius four months ago when it was pushing up against 325. I'm looking like my usual self now. But, you know, these stocks are still reasonable in terms of valuation. But to your point, it feels as though part of what's going on is the rotation out of energy into some of these mega cap names. And I think that's clearly happening. And you highlighted it on ExxonMobil's earnings report a couple of Fridays ago. There's clearly pressure here. What I will say, and I don't want to make people's eyes glaze over, and some people probably say too late for that, Swizz, but oil's in a backwardation again and gasoline as well. So as the commodity has gone lower, crude oil, Typically, you see the contango get steeper. You saw the exact opposite. The backwardation is actually getting steeper, which is something to think about. Point being, the fundamentals are still in place. The price does not speak to that yet, um, but I still think the tr energy trade 
Uh, is on life support, yes, but I still think has some life left in it, Dan. Yeah, so Liz, if we look at the XLE and we know that Exxon and Chevron make up nearly 50% of that and it's sitting right on this uptrend that, that's kind of been in place um, for a couple years now, I'm just curious how you're thinking about energy, especially if your base case is like a, a you know, a, a recession. It seems like a place that you don't want to be in. And, and again, I just, you know, not only because we get um, a lot of great data from our main man, John Butters, um, over at FactSet, but he came on market call. Call, I want to say late last year, and he just said, here's something that I don't think people are really focused on is the contribution of the large integrated energy names. And, and then obviously across the oil patch, they've been huge contributors to S&P 500 earnings at a time where a lot of tech companies were in a bit of a recession. You know what I mean? And that's going to drop off at some point in Q2 into Q3. And look at how the stocks have been trading. They're kind of anticipating that. Yeah, so there's a couple things. I never usually get short term like this. Obviously, in a classic recession scenario, you'd expect energy to drop more. In the next month or so, here's the thing. If we get through the debt ceiling and they pass it and they raise it, the U.S. is probably going to start refilling the SPR, especially if oil is sitting in the range where President Biden had said he would buy it. So then there's more demand coming into the sector. There's still a lack of supply which those two forces would have upward pressure on the price, right? So I am actually constructive on energy, at least into and maybe a little bit past the debt ceiling. If and when we go into an economic contraction, I still expect there to not be quite a, this huge drop in energy prices. There's yeah. probably going to be a drop. But we've talked about this many, many times on this show one of the things, aside from a yield curve inversion, that almost always precedes a recession is a spike in energy prices. We had that last year, right? So this, that spike is probably over. But I also think that there's, there's still a decent amount of resistance underneath it. So energy and financials, if and when we go into the classic recession, those are the two that probably get hit. Those are cyclicals that get hit. Mm -hmm. But it's exactly when you feel uncomfortable about them. You're looking at them like they are the worst sectors you've ever seen in your life. That's when you want to enter. Yeah. And, you know, Guy, just say this. I mean, you if that scenario plays out where they start refilling the SBR, it may be good for crude oil. It may not mean anything for the energy stocks I, in sure. the near term. It should be sure. it could be like a classic um, sort of short squeeze. You know, you just mentioned the debt ceiling and, and a friend of mine who's a very astute um, you know, about politics, and and he also has a good sense, I think, for how uh, you know economics and and interplay uh, a bit with politics here. And you know, he he mentioned to me that he thought, uh, based on what former President Trump had to say about, I mean, the headline this morning very clearly was the GOP should push for a default to cut spending. Okay, and so mm -hmm. if that's something you know that is going to continue to pick up a little steam, he's been really kind of left his hat out of the ring on that guy. How do how do we think about an S and P that's flatlined again at forty one thirty, a VIX that's flatlined at seventeen near you know more than fifty two week lows? Why isn't that? Why is there no no? It doesn't seem like there's any fear whatsoever in in, in the market about this. Well, in terms of just that silo specifically, I think there's a realization that to get long volatility ahead of an event that I think most people think will be rectified some way, shape, or form before this all thing comes to fruition is sort of fruitless. It doesn't work. Maybe it works for a day or so. So I think people are saying to themselves, listen, they'll push this thing to the limit, but they're not dumb enough to allow quick, it to happen. Quick, quick question. But, 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 but let me address what your, yeah. your point. I actually watched the replay of the yeah. CNN thing last night and you're right. He very, he very um, 
definitively said, you know what, they should let it go because what's what maybe it's not going to be a big a deal as people think. Yeah. So he was very dismissive of the potential consequences of that happening. And when he puts that out there, and again, I don't want to play the politics thing, but there will be people, um, you know, on his on sort of that faction of the party, yeah. they're going to buy into that and they're going to push McCarthy on this thing, which will push this thing farther and farther along. That, so that, all right, listen, and that's my exact point. When, it, when you think about it took, what, 12, 13, how many votes for McCarthy to yep. get the votes to become speaker? And when Trump put that out there, my point is that it, it could be just a handful. It could be two or three people who actually feel like they want to pick up, you know what I mean, that kind of flag for for, for Trump. And then that's the thing. And, and I do think that is an important sea change. And I think the reason my friend made the point this morning is that that, that is a new entrant. It's a new wrinkle to this whole situation. So, Liz, I'm just curious if you have any takes as far as just the lack of fear that appears to be in the major indices and also the VIX. And we've already just highlighted that just some of the, the action under the hood is really bad. It shows that there is fear. There is, you know, selling first, asking questions later. But I guess until it finds its way into the major indices and, and the fear gauge, if you will, um, you know, and we had uh, Joe Lavornia guy on Fast Money the other night, and he was, I think, for like a cup of coffee in the Trump White House as an economic advisor towards um, the end. And he kept on making this point is that the markets will be the one that yeah. either push people back. And you and I have gotten very comfortable with that. You know, if you think Think about what we saw, the volatility in and around all the tarps and all the kind of, you know, that sort of thing back in 08, 09. But it doesn't seem the market's doing anything right now. In 2011, in the debt ceiling, the market was also careening lower. Yes. Well, first of all, if everything was so good and if the stories were true, why are we still down 13 to 14 percent from the highs? Yeah. Right. It, so we haven't moved. And there, there's obviously not something fundamental that's out there to take us past where we are now. I mean, I don't have a great explanation aside from something like there are people out there judging a book by its cover. You look at the overall indices and they look okay. You pull the, the screen back a little bit and see that you've got you know a really low number of stocks still above their 200-day moving average. You've got things like the Russell 2000 breaking down. You've got ratios breaking down. You've got inverted yield curves, things like that. that it's almost like you're, you're choosing to ignore and just keep buying and ride some momentum wave. And momentum is okay to ride if you know how to call the inflection point, which I don't think anybody does. And if that inflection point happens, here's the problem. If it turns the other way, and if the very few names that have held us up to this point break down, everything breaks down pretty quickly. So you, it's really, really mm -hmm. risky to be complacent in a time like this when we're held up by very narrow leadership because it tells me that there's probably portfolios out there that do not own other stuff. And in which case, if the narrow leadership gives up its gains, you've got downside almost precipitously in your portfolio. EY, stick around. Jim Trader asks, are there any stocks you would start a position in here? I'm glad you asked, Jim Trader, because <laughs> we happen to have an Alcoa chart. So slide it, Earl, for you uh, Match Game 74 fans, and you'll see we've got a little bit of a double bottom in Alcoa that I think you can trade against right here. So the risk-reward sets up pretty well. If you look at that, the lines, as they say, draw themselves. We traded down the October lows, seemingly held. I think for a trade, Alcoa sets up. Now, we just had a whole conversation about base metals, and you see that's somewhat counterintuitive. What I will tell you is aluminium. I can't even believe I just said that. 
but that's an <laughs> homage to our British friends out there. Uh, it's actually tight as well. So take a look at that, Jim Trader. Now, yeah. with that, Dan, I want to tee you up for how we typically end our Thursdays. Yeah, no, well, let, let's do two things. Let's take a couple extra minutes because I think this is really important. Um, you know, we have uh, the Google. Google had their their I.O. conference yesterday and the stock's up 5% today. It was up a few percent yesterday. It's trading, um, you know, at levels it hasn't traded since August. It's very near its 52-week highs. And this is important. It's a trillion and a half dollar market company. Uh, market cap company. And, and to Liz's point about that narrow leadership, I mean, what's going on right here in the market is a bubble around AI. And, and, and I can't put too fine a point on that. And you'd say, well, it's only affecting six stocks. And that's the point. It is only affecting six stocks. Microsoft, Google, um, it's working its way, you know, obviously NVIDIA, even AMD guy, you know, after that Microsoft announcement that they're going to help them make advanced chips and they're obviously going to be an alternative, um, you know, supplier to 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 some of the places where they're getting them now. I mean, that stock has rallied 15, 20 percent in a straight line. So there is a bubble around something that you can't put your finger on right now uh, in the moment here. And that is really holding up the major industries. So, again, we're just going to keep saying May 24 when NVIDIA reports, you know, if you think about the last 20 percent move in, in this stock, has all to do with demand for these advanced um, AI chips. And so if there's any hiccups there, that's what I think um, that's really important. Look at that breakout there. It looks really nice. Carter said to us earlier in the week, he likes this one. Um, another one, I think this is really important just to kind of reflect on. Carter also said he didn't like this from a technical standpoint. Guy, you said you didn't like it from a fundamental standpoint. To see a stock like Disney down 8 9% in one fell swoop, you better pay attention to what's going on there. And this is not all about streaming. You know, we saw some of the um, commentary out of Airbnb. We saw some of the pricing data um, out of the airlines here. I mean, it seems to be that discretionary spending is slowing. And you do not want to be caught off guard by this. In my opinion, Liz, give us your, your quick take on that to see um, a name like Walt Disney down the way it was or the way it is today, Airbnb yesterday, the reversal we saw in the airlines. Is there a common thread here? Absolutely. I think we've been waiting for the consumer to get hit. Well, low key, they're getting hit and they're making decisions. And I've said this a number of times, consumers can change their mind on a dime. Mm -hmm. Companies cannot possibly model it fast enough and work it into their cost structure fast enough to manage operating margins on the way down with consumer spending. So some of these indicators and, and think about just this is common sense kind of stuff, right? Streaming services. If you are trying to save money, you're going to cut. If you have five subscriptions to streaming services, you probably cut them down to two. Things like durable goods orders. You want to watch that for consumer spending pullback. You want to watch travel, obviously, for consumer spending pullback. I know the airlines reported in the first quarter that they were seeing hot summer demand, record summer demand. Well, summer's not here yet. We could still go through a cycle of cancellations. You never know. So watch this stuff. Watch travel stocks. Watch leisure. Even watch restaurants. As food prices come down from buying food at home, watch the spending on restaurants, eating out, liquor sales, all that kind of stuff is what people pull back on first. Yeah, well, the point about the um, the summer demand for airline tickets, I also saw, I think it was mid to high teens, pricing is down year over year from last summer. And so those are the sorts of things. It's like, don't believe you know all the headlines. Um, sometimes we know the interns are writing the headlines. It's uh, kind of got what the need in there. All right, let, let, let's get to Butters. Um, Guy, you just kind of refer to it. Hold as well. on, you gotta, you gotta tell people what to do, Dan. 
Well, I mean, hashtag butters. I mean, yeah, I, but, yeah. I, I mean, come on, with some enthusiasm, please. We got to do this kind of clean here because we like to. We like. Okay, to let's go. So you All clean right. it up now. Here we go. This is when we're gonna clip this shit. Uh, he he gave it to you, bingo player. But this is, every this, week, every week. This, this is Liz. This, this is this amazing. is kind of right in your wheelhouse. So you know, every okay. week we get a preview of John Butters. Uh, he is the senior earnings insight analyst. Um, his earnings insight blog that drops Friday mornings, and we go through it with a fine tooth comb here on market call here. And today, this is really important as we got through the bulk of S&P 500 earnings, he's looking at kind of the market reaction, right, to beats and misses here. So the market is rewarding positive EPS surprises less than average for Q1. S&P 500 companies reporting positive EPS surprises have seen an average price increase of just 0.3%, which is below the five-year average of 1%. The market is also punishing negative EPS surprises more than average for Q1. S&P 500 companies reporting negative EPS surprises have seen an average price decrease of 4.1%, which is larger than the five-year average of 2.2%. Guys, this is really important to me. This is like, really feels like we are at, to use a trading term guy, tag ends of this rally here. And we know that, yes, a lot of market strategists, a lot of participants, a lot of investors are trying to game out when the recession is going to start. But what we know is that an earnings recession is in front of us or we're in the midst of it here. And when you start seeing less than expected gains or below the average over the last five years for beats and you're seeing greater um, kind of price action to the downside for misses, that's not particularly bullish. Yep. So let yeah. me jump in quickly, why, and then I'm going to let you wrap this whole thing up. People, the beats are coming on the back of lowered guidance and lowered expectations. So these companies are beating a lot of times the guide down that they gave months earlier, which better than expected, but not nearly what it should be, which is why I think the moves haven't been as vociferous to the upside. The ones that are getting beat up are companies that probably guided lower and subsequently missed, which creates a bit of a double whammy. So to Dan's point, about tag ends, or as we used to say back in high school, wait for it, Dan, stems and seeds, it makes perfect sense to me, Elizabeth. Yep. So there's a term we use in this business from time to time called priced for perfection. And I think there are stocks that were out there priced for hitting their earnings targets to perfection. So to any degree that they disappointed they're going to get punished. The market was expecting a little bit more. And then even on the upside, completely unimpressed, right? The market is unimpressed because we do know deep down that these are lowered guide numbers and that these shouldn't be impressive beats. But here we are. We are in the midst of an earnings recession. If the second quarter comes in negative, that will be absolutely squarely an earnings recession. And then that's part two of the three-part series. The third part is an economic recession. So much fun. Dan? <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, I, I promised you that Liz will actually um, be a lot more optimistic when she has reason to be. <laughs> Guy and I will probably still be kind of fussing about it at the bottom for a little bit, and, and then we'll probably turn tide at some point. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out what it is. I don't know. I mean, I, you know what? 
I'm, I'm just the older I get, the crankier I get. I oh, think. hey, before we get out of here, Liz, we wanted to get your take on this. So this oh, is here we go. This should this be good. Prize chart because you know, guy was talking about how he wants to trade the Alcoa off a double bottom, and I was looking at this chart of Levi's, and it looks like a bit of a a bell bottom here. It broke the oh, double wow. bottom. It, it, it's kind of finding its way to new 52 week lows here. And this headline that I saw was absolutely amazing because we were talking about guy still wears. 501 jeans from they the do. aforementioned <laughs> Levi's. And we were thinking if the Levi Strauss CEO can be so bullish on skinny jeans right now, as stock is, is making a bell bottom 52 week low thoughts, Liz should, should guy Adami, should he kind of, uh, should he wade his way into the skinny jeans? What do you think? You know, I love a skinny jean and yeah. on the right guy, skinny jeans look okay. I don't know if guy is the right guy. Not. I think, you know, you seem like, have you ever seen those Wranglers commercials with Brett Favre? Yeah. Brett Favre. Look right. right. Look, look, look one of those She's up. Saying you're more, more of a Wranglers dad gene guy. guy. I'm guy. not. Listen, <laughs> just, just so, just so we all understand before we get the F out of here. Um, I wear 501 jeans since, I, since the 19, since they started making the damn things, yeah. which was like the 1800s. Number one, yeah. number two, <laughs> and this will come as quite a shock. Um, my jean size, if you're looking to buy me some, are 35, 30. So 35 waist, 30 length, which is really freaking weird. I am, I am, I'm, I have a very long torso. As a matter of fact, uh, on the set of Fast Money, this is inside baseball, Mel calls me torso maximus due to the length of my back. So short legs, long back. I also have no ass. I suffer from a disease called no ass at all. Which listen, it afflicts many people. I'm one of those that are afflicted by it. So with all that, skinny jeans are probably not the best for me. Back to you. No, you need some squats in your life. I think yeah, that's noted. what it sounds like to thank me. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Well, well, Liz Young, thank you so much for being here with us today on the market call. Liz will be back with Guy and me Monday morning. We will. Yeah, be we will. Our, it will. Monday OTT. That would be the on the tape drop we're going to take a look ahead at what we think is going to be the most important goings on in the market um for the week and obviously we have to thank uh sofi for sponsoring this fine program and then our data provider guy that would be Faxet. yeah sure somebody just saying see somebody cg says guy skips leg day <laughs> the comment section is so freaking good i want to thank elizabeth young <laughs> can i tell you something Thursdays, I have a shit-eating grin on my face in large part because it's Thursday, but no small order because Elizabeth joins us on Thursdays. And I mean that sincerely. Thank you, SoFi. Thank you, FactSet. Thank you to the audience. And thank you, Dan Nathan, for indulging me. Uh, Yankee <laughs> baseball tonight, four-game set with Tampa. we got to take three or four. be lovely to sweep. Rarely happens. The Mets stumbling in Cincinnati, but we'll see how that turns out. The Brewers... Sort of, they're sort of scuffing a little bit as well. They'll figure it out. Uh, yeah. And Nick basketball tomorrow, Dan. Yeah, man. Um, they they did what they needed to do, but guy, they got to win. They got to win two more to win this series. You know, I, thank you for that. I appreciate that. That's okay, Dick Tracy. Thank you. I, <laughs> I, just, I feel like I feel like what the Warriors did at home and what the Dick Nick did at home last night. It was just by giving their home folks a little bit there, but it's over for both of those teams. Okay. You like that? Elizabeth liked that, Dick Tracy. That was a great poll. Okay. That's it. We'll see you later. Bye.